Welcome to the new podcast, History, Politics, and Beer, where we examine contemporary issues through the lens of history. We are solving the world's problems one podcast at a time. Now, from the home office in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, we invite you to sit back with an ice cold one and enjoy the pontifications of your hosts, Matt Shockey and Jeff Hudson. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, I know we took a two-week break there. Um, trying to put together notes and do some research on this rather large podcast that's going to be coming at you. Matter of fact, I think we're going to split this into two because I don't think we can do justice at one time without going really long. So we're probably hoping to get this maybe into two 45-minute segments. We'll find out as we move along. But it is history, politics, and beer. And one thing that is always true is that my good friend Jeff Hudson brings me a beer, uh, hopefully one that I haven't tried before. And this looks very, you know, I'm going to tell you, it looks like a, um, reminds me of a Shasta box. <laughs> you remember Shasta? Yeah, it does look like Shasta. <laughs> my dad used to drink Shasta as a kid. I don't know. If, do they have Shasta? I don't know if they may make Shasta anymore. I haven't seen it, but I don't want to say they don't. <laughs> I don't want to fame Shasta. Yeah. So, but anyway, it's a uh, green and yellow can. It is green and yellow. Uh, tell us a little bit about it. I haven't tried it yet, and I'm going to try it first well, time. Uh, what we what we have today is the Hazy Little Thing IPA, and it's a I think it's a limited edition beer from uh, Sierra Nevada. And of course, beer lovers out there will recognize the name Sierra Nevada. One of the early uh, craft brewers that really became big out on the West Coast. Their home is in Chico, California. And I think they also, like many brewers have done, have opened up another brewery out east, and it's in North Carolina, uh, where a lot of other brewers have settled as well. But it is an unfiltered IPA, hence the term hazy, and so it has a little different texture. Why don't you have a zip and tell me what you think? I do like the little, uh, I don't know if you caught this right below the lid. It says family-owned, operated, and argued over. And argued over. <laughs> That's, all right, here we go. The big taste here. I'm giving that six and a half. Okay, six and a half. Not great. Not great. Yeah. It's it's a little bitter for me. Yeah, it's hoppy. Um, it is hoppy. Um, but I've it's if you gave this to me on a hot summer day, yeah, I'm going to sit back on the back porch and enjoy it, and be with my dog and enjoy life. Okay, I mean, sir, I mean, it's certainly very. It, it's it is tasty, and if you like IPAs, I it, it does have a really unique taste. Um, so yeah, uh, six and a half. What what are you thinking? You know, I I like this beer. You're no more I, of an IPA guy. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I like uh, I like beers with a little bit of bitter finish. But I do think this has a little fruit at the end. Yeah, maybe a little sugar that kind of cuts the bitterness for me a little bit. It's not the IPA that leaves your you know. No, with, no, 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 no. It is with a ab- coating on your mouth or anything. So I, I kind of agree with you. I'd probably give it you know more of an eight. Right. So, but but that's probably our difference in in tolerance of. Bitterness. And, I tell yeah, you, I'm, I'm, IBUs. I'm not going to slam a, a, a beer on our show, but I did have a beer this weekend, a couple beers this weekend from a mainstream um, brewer, and it was fruit beer, and it was just oh. overwhelming. It yeah. was just absolutely overwhelming. It's like cough syrup. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if that's what the the public wants, so they're producing this stuff. But you know, the your beers have very nice, subtle flavors that don't overwhelm you. Yeah. And I think more beer, that's why there's so many craft beers because, you know, people like stuff, like the flavoring, but they don't like the overwhelmingness. It's like soda is so sweet. You know, we, we're, we're killed with sugar and I think part of that is coming off in some of the mainstream beers. You know, it can it can seem kind of snooty and it does seem to me because I, I didn't grow up in the era of craft beers. So mm. when we talk too much about them, it seems like, you know, it's not wine. No, uh, no. And, but beers do have different flavors. And I do like it that, you know, it's kind of our national drink, like the French and the Italians mm-hmm. have wine. Beer is our national drink. And we have the best beer in the world. Yeah, we, we just do nowadays. We have the most varied uh, uh, and different kind of beers brewed in the world, in, in my opinion. Not that there aren't great beers other places, and that's for sure. But overall... I don't think you can beat the the what's happened in American craft breweries over the last decade. Well, we as Americans, we consume more beer than we do milk. 
We do. Uh, yes, we do. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's true. I certainly do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's not. It's close. I mean, it's really razor close. But I didn't time. when I was a baby. But. No. Well, me, you know. Oh, yeah. You you grew up a little later than I did. People were tougher <laughs> back then. You probably did. Probably had whiskey in your bottle and you know all that. St- anyway, we're going to talk about abortion today. Uh, like we mentioned, do I top- get to drink your beer? No, I'm still going like to drink. It? I'm still uh, going to drink the beer. All right. You know, it's it's you know th- that's kind of insulting. It would be like me going out on a date with someone I really don't like. You know, just kind of like, and you tapping me on the shoulder. It's a, can I date her now? No, you don't get to do that. But I might really like that person. <laughs> you that might. might that might be, and I really like this beer. So I think that's a good analogy. But I think you should give me one of your beers, just like you should give me that date if you didn't like her that much. I didn't say I didn't like her. I just said it wasn't the maybe I liked her right now sort of thing. But you know what? You remember uh, notice like you, you love the one you're with. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. It's a little bit of that. You All drink right. the beer you have. All right. All right. So um, I think. What's going to inform this discussion is to talk a little bit first about where we stand on this issue of abortion. Um, I don't necessarily want, if you want to, you can, you can share your own moral, personal fiber, but I'm really just looking for a political, you know, where you stand politically on, and for some people I know they can't separate this, and I respect that if your morals are such that you can't separate this, but Jeff, where are you standing on this? Well, it's it's interesting that you you mentioned that, uh, you know, some people can't separate maybe their own personal opinions about something and what what you feel the government should do about something, but a perfect example of someone who could uh, was my mom. Uh, she had four kids. She worked with back in the '60s at uh, what was with special needs kids in a private institution because at that time, uh, the the public schools didn't have a mandate to take care of them. Actually, people referred to some of these special needs kids as as retarded, and it wasn't considered uh, politically incorrect at that time. Um, she was a nurturer, loved being a mom, great cook, all these things that that uh, mothers do. Uh, was well liked by the parents uh, of the kids that she, uh, special needs kids that she took care of, and I can't really imagine my mom ever choosing an abortion, no matter what the need of a child that she, you know, she was told that this kid will be Down syndrome or, or even much worse. I don't think my mom ever personally would have chosen abortion. However. I remember very early on, and I don't know if it was because of her experience, in spite of her experience at uh, where she worked and, and, and what she saw, but she thought it was absolutely a woman's right to choose an abortion. No one else's. And I think to, that has affected me in, in the sense that I have to think differently about what I would choose and, and what I think is a blanket rule, what should be the blanket rule for other people. Um, I have some reservations. We're going to talk about Roe versus Wade. I have some reservations about how that is decided. I have some reservations about the frequency that abortion takes place. Is it a million and a half a year? Right. I mean, you talk about globally, um, for every three births, there's one abortion. So statistically, that works out for every woman in the world. They're going to have one abortion during their lifetime. Now, obviously, it doesn't work out because some women will have three, four, five abortions. Some people won't have any. We'll have any. But we're looking at averages. uh, Really, it's about 0.9 abortions for every woman uh, during her uh, fertile years. So it's extremely common. Right. And, and, and I do think because I, you know, I, I am a parent and have been a teacher— I, I think of young faces and uh, the, the, the life that's in them, uh, how enthusiastic they are, the energy of young people. And I, and I can't help but think of those things when I think about the topic of abortion. Um, so this is a very difficult subject for me where I see a lot of areas of gray. And I actually, having talked and talking to people of, of many different viewpoints on this, I actually think that's where the American people are on this. Right. I think I don't think it's a cut and dried thing for the vast majority. Of people. No, 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 no. It is not. So for me, I am pro choice uh politically. Um and I don't really want to share where I am morally on this, uh, because honest God's truth, I don't know where I am morally on this. Um you could convince me probably 
either way. I kind of move back and forth. I'm pro-choice politically because I do not see any other option. It is so prevalent in our society. Uh, one, and I, I told you worldwide, it's about for every three births, there's one abortion. In America, we kind of mirror the world's uh, statistic, and we're about one in three as well here in America. Um, I just don't see pragmatically how we can do anything else but besides what we're doing right now, and that's allowing abortion the first trimester. So politically, I'm pro-choice. Morally, I'm very all over the place on it, but I think that right. does inform our topic of discussion a little bit. Yeah, and uh, of course, we c- we come to this uh, with with a, a point of view, and I, I'll tell you a story uh, that changed the way I felt about an abortion. I had uh, a sister who had a, a roommate, college roommate, who uh, got was from a good family, got married, and uh, after happened to wander into an abusive relationship. And the abuse started in earnest after um, she found out she was pregnant. And then I read about this. This is a very common time. I don't know if people know this. It's a very common time for abuse to start is when a woman becomes pregnant. Someone who who needs attention and needs cause Now the attention of the woman is yeah. on to something else, and it's a way to get attention. If you don't get good attention, you get bad attention. And, uh, you know, she was pregnant, and I'm not going to go into the whole story. Uh, I don't want to, there's no need to. But the idea that you could be pregnant with a child of an abusive person, and you know if they abuse you, there's a very good chance they're going to abuse the child as well. Like, what do you do in that situation? These things are hard choices. You can't, well, you know, I give them up for adoptions, but if you're married, you can't do that. If you're, well, prove that they're abusive, but that's a very hard thing to do. Most abuse happens in private. So what are you going to do? These things are gray areas, and it's good we talk about them and and get them out because I I do think most of our people who listen to this podcast uh, find it to be a gray area as well. Right. I I put a survey out on Twitter before – um, we did this podcast, and it came back 60-40 um, that 60% of people were um, supporting abortion and uh, pro- call themselves pro-choice, and 40% call them pro-life. So it was right. difficult. And, and supporting abortion, I don't know anybody who really right. wants abortion. Uh, let's have more. You know, right. What they are supporting is the woman's right, right to, to choose. choose. So we, don't, we, could talk, we could go down this rabbit hole for hours talking about all the nuances, but really we want to start talking about the Supreme Court. We'll get back into some of this moral discussion, but really we need to frame this out and talk about how the Supreme Court works and how we get to Roe versus Wade in the early 1970s. And Jeff, I know you have some things to say about basically structure the Supreme Court and its role in our system of government. Right. Uh, And everybody knows the court system is one of three uh, sometimes described as co-equal branches, and and really the power that the Supreme Court has is vis-a-vis the other two branches is to declare an executive act or a, a law passed by Congress unconstitutional, um, and that that was spelled out in the Constitution, and then uh, how it worked out practically in decisions like Marbury versus Madison. And when the Supreme Court makes a decision, uh, that becomes a precedent that all other courts must follow. Now, a key to this, what we're talking about here, is the passage of the 14th Amendment. The uh, 14th Amendment does three things. It makes everyone born in the United States a citizen of the United States. And it says that because they are citizens, they have rights. And the two big rights they have are the rights to due process— and the right to equal protection. And that means state. it was passed in the wake of the Civil War. I believe this was passed in 1868. And it was designed to make sure that the freed slaves were not taken, it, that their, their rights were not taken away, especially in the southern states, which were going to come back into the Union. Uh, they would be violating the 14th Amendment. And 
so that's uh, the Supreme Court through the 14th Amendment becomes the protector of our Bill of Rights freedoms. And a case uh, cases come, most cases uh, they take are on appellate jurisdiction, meaning they have a process of appeals. Supreme Court doesn't have to hear them, doesn't hear the vast majority of them. But when they do hear one, uh, there's principles that they follow when they make their decision. There's nine justices. If five of them decide a case one way, uh, then you have a precedent which other courts must follow. The factors that influence judge include following previous precedents or the doctrine of stare decisis. Let the decision stand. So very likely when a case comes to them, they let lower court cases stand all the time. If they do take a court case, they'll look to what the Supreme Court decided in similar cases to make their decision. And this is to get some consistency in the law. You can't have a law's interpretation of law change all the time, especially something as important as the Constitution. Right. So think of the Supreme Court as painting a picture. They don't like to change the color on any particular set of that picture very often. What they want to do is they want to fill in the spots that still need color. So they're going to be making decisions, sort of filling these blind spots as they come up uh, or new ideas arise. And they're going to be very careful when they do this. They're going to let lower courts work. They're going to let decisions um it's called percolation. They're going to let lower courts really start to deal with this and sort of chew on the meat a little bit before they step in. The Supreme Court is a conservative body. They don't want to change law haphazardly. They want a consistent story within the law, um, which brings us to abortion and the abortion decision, Roe versus Wade. And just from teaching for many years and talking to people, the vast majority of the people do not understand this decision, do not understand the precedent, not the precedent, but the precedence this case sits on. And really, this isn't so much an abortion case as it is a privacy issue. Uh, people think Roe versus Wade is all about abortion. It is in a way and it isn't in a way. Really, it's more about the privacy issue that's found in earlier Supreme Court cases. Right. And, you know, when justices look at a case, they look at previous decisions, and they also follow their own particular philosophy. And uh, generally speaking, not always, conservative justices believe in strict construction of the right. Constitution. They're going to look at the text of the Constitution and go, well, it— the, the text says this. What did Madison mean when he was writing this Well, well right, and then it goes in, uh, they also look at original intent. They right. look at the writings, the Federalist Papers, and go, well, what were they trying? Now I've looked at the text in order to explain that text, how I'm going to look at what the, they were talking about to see the original intent. And I'll give you an example of a case that a lot of people know about, uh, Linda Brown, uh, was not allowed to go to school with a, you know basically next door because she was black in the 1950s and that case got appealed uh, and Brown versus Board of Education becomes one of the most consequential uh, decisions the Supreme Court ever makes and what they decided and again using the 14th Amendment they decided the fact that a black kid who was prohibited from going to a white school, was denied equal protection, and it seems kind of on the face of that. We know that. That's obvious. Especially right. if you know the, the, the textbooks and the facilities and how much the teachers were paid, even that. But they even went beyond that and said just because the fact you divide them up, you're making the black kids feel inferior. And uh, that's actually a case you can see right in the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. It's in the text. It's also the original intent because what was the original intent of the 14th Amendment? To secure the rights of African Americans, descendants, descendants of, of slaves. slaves. So there you go, and that's a case I I, w I wanted to point out because liberals would like that decision too, right? They, they would go right along with it. In fact, that decision was nine zero. So everybody in the court thought that's the way it'd be interpreted. And I think most Americans would still agree that that's the way the Constitution be should be interpreted. But there is another way. Uh, the Constitution can be interpreted. Sometimes it's called loose construction. Uh, but it's by, judges have the philosophy that they're there to do what's just. They're, 
that that standards of things evolve. The Constitution was written 200-some years ago, and they need to apply it. And sometimes they're criticized for what's called judicial activism, overturning an act of the executive or the legislature uh, through a court decision when they'd be better off to let those things play out in the democratic process. So this is one of the real factors we have to consider when we look at Roe versus Wade. This is another factor uh, beyond uh, and attached to just the idea whether you're for abortion or against. Was right. this decision correctly decided? So uh, as you mentioned, the the decision in Roe versus Wade was based on other decisions about the right to privacy. Could you explain that a little more to Yeah, so abor- abortion is based on the right to privacy. And uh, the Supreme Court case that's really going to bring this out is Griswold versus Connecticut in 1965. But we have to go back further than that. We really have to go back to the 1870s with a man by the name of Anthony Comstock uh, from New York. Um, Anthony Comstock is going to be the author or the genesis of what is going to be known as Comstock laws. Um, there is going to be one passed at the federal government. It's going to be renewed many times in different variations of it. And 22 states are also going to adopt what are known as Comstock laws. And these basically are morality laws. Uh, we want to outlaw, outlaw by criminalizing by mail and interstate commerce obscenity, contraceptions, abortions, sex toys, all sorts of things. We don't want traveling across state lines. And that's how the federal government's going to step in because only if things are across state lines can the federal government really step in. This is interstate commerce. Now, uh, within a state, like I said, 22 states pass these laws as well. Obscenity laws, Comstock laws. One of these states was Connecticut. And they this law is going to be on the books in many states. Comstock laws were on the books well into the 1960s. And in Connecticut, it was illegal for a physician to talk about, to advocate, to counsel married couples in contraception. Now, it gets kind of odd because you could you, you could talk about condoms and use condoms and sell condoms as long as it was being sold as something to protect you from disease. But as soon as it became to block contraception, to block fertilization, um, it became illegal. Um, And people were arrested in um, Connecticut. I think there was 11 uh, Planned Parenthood uh, branches in Connecticut. And once the arrest happened, it basically shut them all down. And it goes through the courts of Connecticut and ends up at the Supreme Court. And the question before the Supreme Court was, what is the state's compelling reason to be in this room with a doctor and a married couple to say whether they should be using birth control or not? Um, And the state didn't have a good answer. The state basically said the 10th Amendment allows us to do it. And um, And the the 10th Amendment says that states have uh, the powers to do something that's not specifically given to the federal government, that they have other powers. Right. And the women, the, the married couple and the doctor said, no, 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 no. There is a right to privacy in the in the Constitution. And if you read the Constitution, you will know that the word privacy is not mentioned anywhere in the Constitution. So my question to you, Mr. Hudson, is if privacy is not mentioned anywhere in the Constitution, how in the world do we get the idea of privacy from the Constitution? Right. And and, and that's where you go where you, you, it, it might be a little hard just using textualism and original intent. But there are things in the Constitution. Freedom of religion. I mean, religion is practice in general. Uh, it, it, it can be in a church, but it's not in a public building usually. It's in private. And, you know, right here, the Hans Herr, we're in uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Uh, the Mennonites would would have their services at home. It was right. private. So you, you, you know, it was a private thing. Your worship was private. What you believed about God was your own and the same way with freedom of speech, freedom of uh, the press. Sometimes they're called freedom of conscience. And you had 
the the Third Amendment, which said soldiers can't be forced into your home. Uh, and then you had the Fourth Amendment, which, of course, says that if the government uh, feels like you're committing a crime or there might be evidence of a crime, they have to go get a warrant from a judge. Uh, you have the Fifth Amendment, which says you can't be tortured into incriminating yourself. There, There's a lot of things in there that suggest a right to privacy. And whether I, I think most Americans would say that they do have a right to privacy. That, right. The that, court's going to call this eventually a zone of privacy okay. that you can certainly read into the Constitution, though it's not mentioned exactly. You can read into the Constitution that there is a zone, a zone of privacy. And very reasonably. Right. You don't right. have to stretch this. Right. And which Madison very astutely puts in the Ninth Amendment, right? right? So why don't you explain the Ninth Amendment and how this sort of is the catch-all and how it relates to privacy? Right. Well, the, the Ninth Amendment says that your list in the, of rights in the Bill of Rights, which were added and to ensure individual freedoms, they were afraid of an all-powerful government that was going to take away the rights of the states and the people. So the Ninth Amendment was added, and basically what it says is this— yeah, we've listed the stuff, a lot of stuff in the Bill of Rights, and um, but that doesn't mean that that's the end all and be all of the list of your rights. You have other rights that aren't listed. That's basically they're retained by the states and the people. So the question becomes then, what are these rights? And possibly, probably, I think. The, most people would say, "Well, the right to privacy is one of those rights." Right. So this is what this is what the Griswold case came down to. The Griswold case, obviously, maybe not obviously, but uh, the state had no compelling reason to uh, control this. There's a privacy issue, and of course, you can counsel married couples concerning birth control. Um, seven years later, another case came before the Supreme Court that expanded that right to privacy to unmarried couples. All right. So now what this does, and now this is an important part of this, it takes the right to privacy and puts it embedded in the Constitution as a constitutional right. Now think about this little right to privacy. Now he's wearing armor. It's going to be very hard to strike him down for the state or the federal government to pass a law that's going to fringe on this right to privacy. Okay, it, it, The Supreme Court uses the term strict scrutiny. So for the legislative branch of any state or even the federal government to infringe on the right of privacy, number one, they must have a compelling purpose to do so, which is a very high standard. Next, the law must be narrowly tailored to achieve that goal. And finally, it must be the least restrictive means of achieving that purpose. Okay, so now we sort of discovered this new right, privacy. Privacy is wearing its armor and brings us to Roe versus Wade because Roe versus Wade is going to put this little armored privacy guy out there and goes, wait, wait, wait. Abortion is also protected by the right to privacy. It's also, re they're going to say it's also a reproductive decision. Absolutely. Right. So when, if the state wants to restrict abortion, it better have a compelling purpose. The law must be narrowly tailored, and it must be the least restrictive means. Again, strict scrutiny is a very high hurdle to get over to actually pass a law. Right, and let's talk a little bit about the actual case. Uh, Jane Roe uh, wasn't really her name. I think a lot of people probably know that. Uh, it's just like John Doe, Jane Roe, they're uh, pseudonyms. And uh, the real name of the person was Norma McCorvey. And she was pregnant with her third child, and she wanted a, an abortion. But Texas law at that time, 19, and this is in 1969, I think, when the case was bought, uh, pro pro prohibited an abortion except uh, in the case when a woman's life was in danger. And let's talk a little bit about right here uh, this misconception about Roe versus Wade, that it legalized abortion and it was just never legal before. Well, every state, uh, had an exception in case of the woman's life being in danger. But there were also uh, at least 12 states that made exceptions on the basis of race, incest, danger to physical or mental health or fetal defect, 
And uh, New York State had already decriminalized abortion in 1970. Thousands of well-off women started traveling there to obtain uh, safe abortions. So I think this is an important thing to deal with right now. The idea that Roe versus Wade legalized abortion in the United right. States, it, it, it's just not true. Not uh, lots of people were getting legal and, ele- and, of course, illegal abortion in the United States. What it did, though, was make choosing an abortion a constitutional right, and they did so through the right to privacy. In fact, when Roe bought her case, and she, and, and she didn't get an abortion. She, this took too long. She had her baby. It was put up for adoption. But uh, the 3rd District, Federal District Court, uh, where uh, her lawyer f- filed the case, said she, her right to privacy was protected by the Ninth Amendment. And you know what? She has a right to do that because— it's a right to privacy. Then it gets appealed to the Supreme Court. Right, and the state's going to try to make this argument that there's a compelling reason to to make this decision. Um, to, it, to, to make the law that I'm sorry, yes, yeah. absolutely. There's a, there's a compelling reason for the state to step in and stop uh, an abortion, and it's for the life of the fetus. But Sarah Weddington is the lawyer who's going to argue um, for a row says, well, this really isn't true, because if you look at how the law is written in Texas and how laws are written all across the country, but specifically in Texas, um, the woman is never charged with a crime. If it really is your compelling reason that you're going to save fetuses, why isn't the woman never charged? Only the doctor is charged. So if a woman goes home and performs a self-abortion, that's legal. That seems to indicate that really you're and they're the most dangerous kind. Absolutely. Statistics. Um and you're allowing abortions in the case of rape, you're allowing the abortions in case Some of incest, states. incest well in Texas, um which we she was arguing. So again, this tells us that maybe you really aren't that concerned with the fetus because if you were concerned about the fetus, you would protect that life. Really what she's saying is that the only time an abortion would be legal if this truly was your uh, compelling reason would might be for the life of the mother, but it really isn't. So you'd have to choose between lives. Exactly. Um, and this is really a privacy issue and it's geared more towards doctors than it is towards women, which is what a lot of people don't think either. This is all a woman's decision. And really the Texas statute required physicians to determine whether a woman's life was at risk, permitting them to perform an abortion Overall, the laws were vague enough to worry doctors about the legality of this. So the law was so vague that doctors are saying, could I be arrested for this abortion? Could I not be arrested for this abortion? Which, again, made it the argument that maybe the state of Texas, maybe the compelling reason isn't to save the fetus. Right, right. And uh, again, uh, the the idea is... Uh, and, and the ruling that Justice Blackman wrote. And and it's a kind of a strange deal here because when we're going to talk about the ruling, the majority ruling, which was a 7-2 decision in Roe versus Wade, established a woman's right to choose an abortion in the first trimester. And Justice Blackman did, I think, kind of a strange thing before he wrote the opinion and actually before the case was finally decided. He spent a week at the Mayo Clinic studying the history of abortion. But also, did you know that he spent 10 years as the Mayo Clinic's counsel? Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. So he he knew. And he wanted, actually, before he got into law, he was in school to be a doctor. Okay. So this really comes together for Blackman to be... The guy who's going to write that. Absolutely. And, 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 and what he did is he comes up with this idea of the trimester scheme, which a lot of our listeners might be familiar with. In the first trimester, he says, you know what? The states have no no compelling interest. They, they have no reason to prohibit a woman from getting abortion. So right. establish basically an absolute, absolute constitutional right for a woman to choose in the first trimester. So if we go back to this idea of strict scrutiny, it fails the first test, and that is, do you have a compelling reason? He says no. You don't have a compelling reason, so we don't have to worry about being narrowly tailored. It's a woman's right to privacy. You you just stay the heck out. And remember, the right to privacy comes from Griswold and that little guy in armor, that that little brand new right that we just discovered, the right to privacy, is really powerful. Right. And now it's being applied to these reproductive decisions. 
He goes in the second trimester. Well, the state can regulate abortions as long as, and basically says for the health of the mother. So I, to me, it sounds like to make sure that they're safe. Right. You know, to, it's it's not in the interest of preventing them. However, in the third trimester, which he calls the age of fetal viability, in other words, the 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 fetus could now be delivered or taken out of the mother and live, the state could restrict abortions and what he called in the interest of protecting potential life. A lot of people don't even understand that Roe versus Wade itself was a limited decision. Even though it granted women an, an absolute constitutional right in that first trimester, it does leave open things, restrictions in the third trimester. Right. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg later on is going to say that maybe for women's rights, this wasn't a real good decision. It came too early because there was a groundswell movement in states to liberalize abortion laws. And they were probably going to be much more liberal than what Roe is going to allow. And then in 1972, when this decision comes down, it basically kills this movement because what Roe does is sort of set in stone that First trimester is protected. Second trimester, compelling interest is the woman. Third trimester, compelling interest is the woman and the unborn child. Right. And whether you're uh, for letting a woman to choose uh, where most Americans would probably say, well, under what circumstances someone will choose an abortion, where you think the government should now become involved in the decision. Um you can object, I think, to the way this was decided. There, the justices White and Rehnquist at the time wrote dissenting opinions, and and basically they said this: I, I they they found nothing in the language or history of the Constitution to support the court's judgment. And Rehnquist mentioned some states had anti-abortion laws at the time of the Fourteenth Amendment. We should make clear that the Supreme Court based this decision on the 9th and the 14th. Right. And Rehnquist said, well, you know, I looked, looked at the history of the 14th Amendment, going back to original intent. doesn't say anything about abortion. Right. So you're reading in things that aren't there. Let's let, let's let the legislature decide this. And so uh, White and Rehnquist uh, are basically what you call strict constructionists. And whether or not you think that uh, uh, women should be allowed to choose an abortion. This is a separate argument. This is who should decide that. Should it be the legislatures in the states? Should it be the, the national legislature? Or should it be the court system? And, of course, Justice Scalia becomes one of the most well-known, um, uh, I guess, proponents of strict construction, textualism, and original intent. Yeah, so he's going to, I'm going to play a little clip here from Scalia, and Scalia's basic argument is going to be that there are a few rights off the table, uh, and there are in the Bill of Rights, that really are not open to the democratic process. The rest of them are um, open to the democratic process, and the right to privacy and the right to an abortion, but are all part of, and he disagrees, by the way, with the Roe v. Wade decision based on the legal part of it. He doesn't mention his own personal views. So here, let's take a listen to Judge Scalia. I'm in the business of enforcing democracy. What, what, what democracy means is that on controversial issues, even stuff like homosexual rights, abortion, whatever, we debate with each other and persuade each other and vote on it, either our representatives or through, through uh, uh, constitutional amendment in the states, we decide the question. Now, there are some exceptions to that in any liberal democracy, and in ours, most of those exceptions are contained in the Bill of Rights. But that Bill of Rights was adopted by the majority, which is why it is proper in a democracy to have a Bill of Rights, because the majority adopted it. Now, when they adopted it, what did they take out of that general principle? What did they take out of that general rule of democracy that we, we allow open speech, we persuade each other, and we vote? What did they take out of it? They never took out these issues. Abortion, homosexual conduct, why? Nobody ever thought that they had been included in the, in the rights contained in the Bill of Rights, which is why uh, uh, abortion and homosexual sodomy were criminal for 200 years. Now, whether that's a good idea or a bad is, is not what I'm talking about. That's, not my job to say that. It is my job to say whether, whether the Bill of Rights 
has taken it out of the realm of democratic debate. So very simply, I mean, this idea that the Bill of Rights takes things out because they're so important, uh, the founders uh, put you certain- You can practice your religion. Right. And there's not going to be a national religion. Right. That's, and and that's not, saying, that's not, not gonna, up for debate. Yeah, we're not going to argue about that. Right. That's not up for debate. But if it's not there, it is up for debate. This is what a democracy does. And he is going to argue that this searching for rights in the Constitution, we could get into substantive due process. I don't know. That might be getting a little further into it than we really want to. Um, that this idea that you can find a right in the Constitution, and then this right becomes equal to the rights that are originally written into the Bill of Rights, You are this. where, where are you finding this? Show me somewhere where the founders may have wrote in the Federalist Papers, where they may have written in a diary, a note to a girlfriend, anywhere that they thought the Constitution would be used like this. You can't find it. Therefore, we shouldn't be looking for it. Right. And, you know, he's going along with the tech, textualism and original intent. And I think, again, there are two arguments. You know, there's the moral argument on both sides, and we're going to go into that, and both sides have compelling arguments on their side. That's not – now, Rehnquist was a Catholic – excuse me, uh, Scalia was a Catholic, so we probably know his view right. about abortion. But he's not saying that. You know, he's saying that – I, I, this is something you can find. And a, a lot of, of, of people have looked at this, especially the trimester scheme. Yes. Like, wh- where are you going to find the trimester scheme uh, in the Constitution? You, you, you're not going to find that. And a lot of people have said, you know, well, maybe this was going a little bit too far. This was judicial overreach, this was activism. Uh, on the part of Justice Blackman. And even, as uh, we mentioned earlier, even some more liberal justices who became justices later, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, said, you know what, this cut off the process. We were, we were having debates, and guess which side was winning? Right. You know, it, it was the, the side to, to liberalize abortion laws and, and allow women to have more of a choice, and, and doctors, women and their doctors, to basically make the decision. And this cut this off. Um, And this is an interesting uh, thing, too. Uh, I think there's a couple uh, misconceptions about Roe and about abortion that persist to this day. One of the things that I sense is that, you know, people believe Republicans are pro-life and they think abortion rights and Democrats are pro-choice. And what that might roughly be true, um, you know, this this uh, case was was decided and upheld. There were a lot of Republican justices, and there are going to be a couple more cases: uh, uh, Webster versus Reproductive Health Services and Planned Parenthood uh, versus Casey, where Sandra Day O'Connor, a Reagan appointee, becomes a very critical vote in upholding the constitutionality of Roe versus Wade. So it's not just a simple Republican Democrat. Right. And this decision is getting stronger is it, it because of this idea of precedent right. that we keep building off this precedent of the right to privacy. Um, and as you talk about people misunderstanding things, Roe v. Wade is much more of a privacy case than it is an abortion case. The, the abortion is certainly is what they're arguing about, but without the privacy issue, this isn't an argument. The states probably have a right to regulate it only because the privacy issue is elevated to a constitutional right is it allow for Roe versus Wade ever to happen. So it is a it's a Roe versus Wade before it is anything. It is a Supreme Court case about privacy that is resting on the back of Griswold. You have Griswold, you have Roe and some other cases in between um, that are expanding the right to privacy. As you point out, the Webster case is going to build off of that. The Casey case is going to build off of this. And this is the mountain sort of that's being built to say, yeah, this is a privacy issue and the state does not have a compelling reason to step in. Well, here's another misconception I think a lot of people have about this. Uh, We already talked about it. It's certainly not 
the decision that legalized abortion in the United States. They were widely available in earlier periods. Yes, of and we're going to talk history. about that in our next podcast. Right, but they were even available at the time of Roe versus Wade. There were you know twelve different states and that 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 had uh, more liberalized abortion laws than just in the case of a mother's life being in in, in danger, uh, and. Uh, a lot of there are some people I talk to. They go, "Well, if we repeal Roe versus Wade, oh yeah, this is a good, this is a good if, point. If, if somehow we get the right justices in and they don't uphold it, then then we get rid of legalized abortion. And of course, that's not true, because as I mentioned, at the time, states had at this time it was decided in 1973, states had different laws about abortion and when you can have one and and so forth. It would go back." To that thing, so you would have fifty different states deciding what abortion laws would, and I think if we look at what has happened in some of these states, it's not what people who want a blanket prohibition on abortion uh, would like. In the state of South Dakota, I believe in two thousand and six, the legislature passed a law, and sometimes they're called trigger laws. They're, what would happen if Roe versus Wade is overturned, then right. then our law will take effect. And they said, well, we're going to make it go back, though the way it was in Texas. If a woman's life is in danger, then 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 you know she can choose, or her and her doctor can choose an abortion. But that's it. And the people of South Dakota, one of the most conservative states in the United States, I think they might have gone for Trump by 20 points, something like that. I mean, this is a state that is a reliable Republican state. They took it upon themselves to get this on the ballot and overturn that act of their legislature. The people of South Dakota said, no, that's not what we're going to do. It's not going to be just in the case that a woman's health is in danger. Uh, and then we have what happened in Mississippi. And what was that, 2011? 2011 in Mississippi. Was I, the fetal personhood? Was that oh, the fetal yes, personhood? Oh, yes, yeah. Um, bringing up this idea of personhood. I don't want to get too far into this because this gets into the moral part of it, but is a fetus a person? Because this is the, the, if you can't strike down the privacy aspect of it, then you have to elevate the fetus um, to the point of being pers- a person or person. So the state has a compelling interest. Right. And all of a sudden then, if, if a fetus is a person, then they have 14th Amendment rights, they have due process, and you can't take away their life without due process of law. And Mississippi tried to do this right. by an amendment to their state constitution. And- you know, if you can argue South Dakota is a very Republican and very conservative, but they are in a sense like a lot of Western states. They want the government to be out of your life. Right. And there is a conservative argument to be made. Actually, I think it's pretty conservative. To How many conservatives would want the government there in the room when you talk about birth control with your wife? Not, I don't think they're going to say, well, geez, that's government overreach. We don't want that. And so you have these conservatives, sort of a more libertarian tradition in South Dakota, and they're voting, yeah, well, we don't want them about, they're about abortion either. Right. We don't want that. We want it to be uh, mostly, especially in the early stages, between a doctor and the woman involved. That's what the people have said. So that's a libertarian. But if we go to Mississippi, you have a different kind of conservative, potentially. You have the religious conservative, certainly part of the Bible Belt. But even in Mississippi, they fail to pass the fetal personhood amendment. They don't grant the fetus full legal rights as a human being. And there's lots of different reasons for that. One is that... uh, you know, uh, when someone gets pregnant, there is a good chance, a good chance that they'll miscarry. That happens frequently. Yes. And there's arguments about, because we don't know all the miscarriages. But even if, tech, even if Mississippi passes this law, it doesn't affect Roe. It's it's not going to supersede the Supreme Court. No, no, they, no, it, it won't because it's a state law right. and, you know, because of the supremacy clause. But- my point is, it, let's say, I, I'm just using for the sake of argument, what if they could get the right combination of justices? Okay. But it's still not going to do what I, I think a lot of right. very conservative people who are anti-abortion want done. In the case of South Dakota, people are going to say, no, no, even in a conservative, no. It, that's a zone of privacy. Basically, that's what they're saying. It's between a woman and her doctor. 
and we're not going to let our legislature do it. So it'll go back to the states. Well, wait a second. We're going to have, you know, uh, so we're going to make the the fetus have all the rights of a person. But but Mississippi, the very religious and conservative state, is saying no, we can't do that. And and part of the reason is is the arguments were made during that is is that yeah, women will miscarry. So what are you going to do? A woman's going to get pregnant. Okay, then is is she followed then? Do you do you check from the time that someone knows she's or she's told her friends pregnant? Does does that person then have a responsibility to tell the authorities that you know her friend has told her she's pregnant? But then if she miscarries, it, it, do you have a murder investigation? I mean, it, it's unworkable. It it's is absolutely unworkable. And Mississippi didn't do it either. So. Again, one of the misconceptions, we just get Roe. And if, if you are uh, against, uh, you know, abortion uh, being a constitutional right, you do have to overturn Roe. But it's not going to get rid of legal abortion in the United right. States. There's other states like Maryland who also have trigger laws that say if Roe versus Wade is ever overturned, we have safe legal abortions in this state. So, so I think that's a really good place to, to cut us off here. Um, we're going to come back next week. And we're going to talk about the moral component of this. Uh, we're certainly not going to leave that out. And when you talk about the moral component, we're going to talk about the historical part of this. We're going to talk about the Bible. We're going to talk about Bible verses, um, Catholic saints. Uh, this gets really— in- Common practices and cultures, and right. even in our culture earlier, because, again, uh, you know, I think a lot of people think Roe versus Wade, well— the, you know, that was a big milestone and abortions are now legal. Well, that's not really true. Abortions have been legal in the United States in a lot of places way before Roe. So if you have a question you'd like us to answer, you have something specific, uh, you know, you can always email us, uh, historypoliticsandbeer at Gmail. Our Twitter account is historypoliticsandbeer. We have a Facebook account, historypoliticsandbeer. So let us know if you have any questions. We'll answer those specifically for you next week. Uh, But next week is going to be a little bit different. We're going to try to get away a little bit of the Constitution and get into more of the cultural aspect of it and explore that. So until next week... um, Drop us a line, uh, rate us on iTunes, give us that five stars, give us uh, some comments, something we can grow on. Um, Thank you for listening to us, and we'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody.